welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 171. My name is Terry Frost, and this time around I'm looking at um, a film noir and a thriller from the 1960s. The film noir in question is 1952's Kansas City Confidential, starring John Payne. And then we move on to 1965 for a kind of spy, slightly science fiction thriller, The Satan Bug directed by John Sturgis and starring George Maharis and Francis and Richard Basehart. So both of them quite exciting movies. Both of them a little bit off everybody's radar, but they're worth checking out. And um, they are great films. So I'll get the contact details out of the way and I'll be back in just a moment. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old, and I have to like it. Now, you can leave feedback via MP3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U, which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates. This podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts, so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children, listen to it with your headphones on. Hey, how's everybody doing? Um, it's warm here. It's nice and warm. It's going to be 30 degrees today, apparently. And the sun is shining. I'm sitting in shorts and T-shirt, which is not a good mental image for anybody, but it shows how warm it is. And I'm planning to barbecue some steaks for dinner. So the weather has turned. Daylight saving started today. And it's all good, and including the fact that football season has now ended. Well, uh, there have been a few changes around here. The first one is that we've got some solar panels on the roof. We've currently got 16 solar panels on our roof waiting to be hooked up to the grid so that we can generate some of our own power. And what that means for the podcast is that Paleo Cinema and Martian Drive-In podcast recording are going to be carbon neutral. We will be generating our own power to run the computer and the microphone and all the whiz-bang shit that goes into doing a podcast. So it's going to be a carbon neutral podcast, except for the fact that it runs on an enormous server farm somewhere when you download it. But that's your side of it, you see. My side of it, carbon neutral and uh probably save us a bit of money as well which is not a bad thing so we're just waiting in the couple of weeks it takes for that to get hooked up to the meter and um all will be well and i will be slightly more and only slightly more environmentally friendly okay so on with the show uh so the two movies today are Kansas City Confidential, directed by Phil Carlson, a really nice little film noir, which is in the public domain. And if you go to YouTube, you can find a fairly good copy of it. The copy I've got is the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, and that has some of the um, scratches on the original master print eliminated um, computer in a computer-generated kind of way, and I said that really clumsily. Uh, but the copies on YouTube, which I have checked out, are quite good, so you can definitely grab it i will send a link through on the show notes so that you can check it out on youtube should you choose to do so but the kino lorber um blu-ray copy is quite cheap and is of great quality and i think it comes in a double pack as a dvd and a blu-ray together i'm not sure why they do that but they apparently do the other movie i've got is also a kino lorber release on blu-ray and it's the satan bug a john sturgis thriller from 1965 starring George Maharis 
uh, Anne Francis is in it, Richard Basehart, a whole bunch of other character actors that we know and love. And it's got that kind of John Sturgis widescreen wonderfulness about it. Uh, John Sturgis's panoramic widescreen photography is very much in evidence in this film. And it's a kind of forgotten thriller in a sense. And it um, shows an interesting point in the career of um, George Maharas as well. And I will talk a little bit about that because it's an interesting social thing happening around that time, which uh, had an influence on the man's career. So uh, on to the next stage, which, of course, is what I've been watching. And I've got my letterboxed.com um, page up at the moment. Uh, first thing I saw was I saw the Fantastic Four movie, the recent one, which is pretty bad, to be honest with you. It is pretty bad. None of the characters really are, are likable or, or well-written. They're, they're very much underwritten characters. Uh, it's a little too dark as well, both in theme and in the cinematography, and it's just a lost opportunity. It really doesn't grab you at all. A lot of money was spent on it, but not to good effect, which is a shame, really, because a lot of people have got a certain fondness for the franchise, for the Fantastic Four, but this is definitely a failure. Uh, Then uh, Paul Serratore up in Alice Springs and I talked on the radio for ABC Local Radio, Northern Territory. I took him out of his comfort zone because Paul's quite young and I thought I'm going to throw a classic film noir at him. One of the first films noir, in fact. So I'm going to take him out of his comfort zone and show him a wider universe. And so we did the Maltese Falcon. Not the original version of the Maltese Falcon, by the way, which starred Ricardo Cortez. But the 1941 version with Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Peter Laurie, Sidney Greenstreet, Elisha Cook Jr. and all. And Paul liked it. He really did. He he took him into a new area and I've now given him a list of film noir to watch, which is kind of cool. And um, I think he's going to enjoy it as well. And that's part of what I do is show people movies that maybe haven't been on their radar. And I was lucky enough to do that with Paul. Uh, The next week, Liz is back. Uh, she's back on shift, so we're going to be doing different kinds of movies. But uh, the gig goes ahead with ABC Local Radio Northern Territory, and I'm still enjoying doing it. So it's all good there. Uh, then I did another thing which I picked up on Blu-ray. I've had a few Blu-ray scores of late because I've got a little bit of a work bonus, some of which went to buying Amazon Blu-rays in spite of the hideous exchange rate at the moment. And I got the Dick Powell movie, which I've talked about on a previous podcast, Murder My Sweet with Claire Trevor and Anne Shirley in it as well, and Mark Mazurki. Uh, really great film. I know that um, Married with Clickers, the Clickers love it. And uh, I was actually going, this is a funny story. And this happens when you've been podcasting for eight years, eight years this month, in fact. Uh, with Paleo Cinema. I've forgotten that I had done Murder My Sweet and I was actually going to do it for this podcast. And then I looked back on the list and sure enough, Murder My Sweet is up there already. So I'm not doing it for this podcast and I kind of roll with it. I've got a visual list which Paul White has kindly enough put up on the web of all the movies that are in Paleo Cinema. And there it was, and I went, okay, well, I still enjoyed watching the movie again. It's great fun. It shows the transition of Dick Powell from being a light song and dance man to being a serious actor and, later on, director. And it's right at that point where he showed them that he could play a tough guy, Private Eye, in this case, Philip Marlowe, and he did a good job of it. And so his career took an entirely different path. He he took a left-hand turn. 
And it continued on, of course, until the early 1960s when he died because he made a movie called The Conqueror in the desert where of Nevada where some atomic testing had been done and a lot of the people involved in that film ended up dying of cancer. But that's a story for you to look up later. Uh, I did see another movie which uh, has not really got a lot of love, but I kind of like it, and I'm going to watch it again at some stage, and that's Tomorrowland, the Brad Bird movie starring George Clooney and Hugh Laurie. Um, somewhat science fictional, a little bit Disney-related, but I kind of liked it. I think it's a groovy-looking film. It's got some things to say that are quite important about being optimistic about the future and that optimism having an influence on how the future plays out. Uh, if you're a little bit... You know, I don't know whether I want to watch that, give it a go. It's not as bad as people have made out. And mostly because... And there are movies that are like this, mostly because it goes against the current negativity about the future of the world that is rife in our society. Um, it's not surprising with the things that are going on with all those shootings in America and with ISIL in Syria and Iraq and all those other kind of issues. It's very easy to get into a negative head spin. But this movie kind of says that that's not in your best interest to do that. You've got to make the future happen in a positive way. And it's not a bad message to send out to kids, really. Uh, they do get bombarded with this negative shit. But there needs to be something fighting that. And this movie had the intention, successful or not, of doing that. Then I went and saw... Well, I didn't go and saw. I go and took off. I went and took off the shelf. And my words don't seem to be coming very well today. I took off the shelf Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, the Michael Cimino movie starring Jeff Bridges and Clint Eastwood from about 1974. It's a crime film. It's got George Kennedy in it as well and Jeffrey Lewis. And it's a nicely made 1970s crime drama uh, set out in Montana, I think it is. And uh, it looks good. The acting in it's pretty good. Jeff Bridges is particularly good in it, though Eastwood is pretty much Eastwood in the film, you know, that kind of wooden Eastwood thing. Made in the same year, I think, as the Iger Sanction, a much better Clint Eastwood movie in some ways and a much worse one in others. But um, I watched that again because I picked it up very cheaply on Blu-ray and I thought, yeah, I haven't seen that for a long time and I'll give it a go and it wasn't a waste of time it's still a good crime movie and if you ever wanted to see Jeff Bridges in drag this is the go-to movie to do that okay next up I saw Thank Your Lucky Stars which is a 1942 I think it is Warner Brothers musical where they basically got all their stars together and gave them their salaries which they then donated to the Hollywood Canteen which was a service that they had in Hollywood mostly done by Warner Brothers with the instigation of people like Bette Davis to give soldiers who were on their way to the war in the Pacific a place to get a bit of R&R and meet some movie stars get a meal and a dance and and basically um, offer them some kind of comfort before they went off to war and so thank you lucky stars was a part of that it's got weird and wonderful things in it i've talked i've actually talked about it on the podcast before uh but the titan the kind of star of it is eddie Cantor, but he's kind of comedy has dated a lot but it's got some really cool stuff like um john garfield and errol flynn singing in it betty davis singing they're either too young and too old which is kind of cool um, it's it's well worth your time to check it out. It's very much of its time. But the Kino Lorba, and I bought a number of Kino Lorba deep, uh, Blu-rays at the moment. The Kino Lorba um, Blu-ray of this has a lot of extras, including a Bugs Bunny cartoon and a few other bits and pieces. 
which are kind of cool, are some World War II propaganda shorts. Uh, it's a really nice little package, that one, and it's worth checking out. And then this morning, just to kill some time, because daylight saving just started, and I was up at um, before the sun rose, and I decided to watch the 1933 James Whale movie, The Invisible Man, with Claude Rains in it. And yeah, it's still a lot of fun. I mean, it always, in my head, it always reminds me, of course, of the son of the Invisible Man from Amazon Women on the Moon, where Ed Begley Jr. basically deconstructs this movie in a comical way and has a lot of fun with it. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of those great universal horror films of the 1930s, and it it kind of works. It, it has a very good sense of place in England, even though it was filmed in California. There are a lot of very English things there in the pubs and the towns and the way the coppers are and the way the people act and a lot of good English character actors in the minor roles. But uh, And then, of course, the, the, there are the special effects which for their time were mind-blowingly good, even though they do look slightly um, obvious to modernise. They're still, for 1933, exceptionally good special effects. And it's well worth checking out the film. Uh, it's a kind of template movie in some ways for a lot of films that followed not just movies about invisible people but movies about any kind of human mutation and um yeah i'm gonna to have to go and do some more of the universal horror ones and revisit those i think just as almost like comfort food for the mind but that's about it uh i've been watching nothing much else some tv and the other stuff but uh it's time to talk about the two movies. I'm going to do them in chronological order because that um, keeps it simple for me. And the first movie I'm going to talk about after the break is Kansas City Confidential, starring John Payne and people like Jack Elam, Lee Van Cleef's in it, Neville Brand. It's a great little crime thriller and it's available to you, of course, in the public domain. I ought to ram it down your throat. What's waiting for you, Harris? The chair, the gas chamber, or just a rope? How do I know that line you handed me on the phone's on the level? Your voice don't even sound the same. Neither will yours when you put on a mask. Who else figures in it besides me? You ask too many questions. And I'm not getting any answers. I'd like to know who I work with, when we make a split, and who I take my orders from. Get out of here. All right, I'll get out. That choice you're giving me. You know the bind I'm in. Take it or leave it. You said 300 grand for my end. At least, free and clear. Only you do it my way. Nobody sees the others without a mask, even when we make the split. And I decide where and when that takes place. That makes it all foolproof. That was Preston Foster and Jack Elam from the 1952 crime thriller, Kansas City Confidential. It was directed by Phil Carlson, who also did um, Phoenix City Story, which I talked about in the last podcast. And this one's really great. It plays a bit like an early John D. MacDonald novel, which is not a criticism at all, because I love early John D. MacDonald novels. And it, it may well have been influenced by a short story that MacDonald did, who knows, but it's got a lot of the same tropes and it's quite cool. The crime that sets things off, that crime that they were talking about in the clip, is not unlike, with some technological upgrades, the caper in, at the beginning of the Thomas Crown Affair. So uh, Thomas Crown Affair owes a debt to 
Kansas City Confidential, which is okay. Movies borrow from each other a lot. People have said the Reservoir Dogs has got similarities to this one, though I can't particularly see it. But uh, the movie was actually made by a company that only made this one movie, which is the reason why it's now in the public domain. And even if you go to uh, IMDb, Associated Players and Producers, which is the name of the company, the only thing they ever did, and I've just confirmed it with IMDb, is Kansas City Confidential, which, you know, I, I wish it had it done more because it's a great little film. It, it's put together nicely. Uh, it was directed by uh, Phil Carlson, as I said, stars John Payne, Colleen Gray, who you might remember was the ingenue in Nightmare Alley with Tyrone Power back in the mid-1940s. It also stars Preston Foster as uh, Tim Foster. He plays a guy with the same surname as himself, a cop who lives down in retirement in Mexico. Uh, you've got Neville Brand playing Boyd Kane, one of the criminals, Lee Van Cleef playing Tony Romano, another one of the criminals, and Jack Elam playing Pete Harris the third of the four criminals now the mystery man who puts the caper together is Preston Foster now that um, isn't really a spoiler because we see it right at the start we see who the mastermind of the crime is and when we see him again living down in Mexico as a retired cop it doesn't come as too much as a surprise we knew he'd have to come back into things somewhere and we're just waiting to see where it happens so John Payne, a guy who very much like Dick Powell started out as a song and dance man and then went on to do some kind of grittier roles plays Joe Rolfe who is a uh, florist delivery man and part of the caper is that in order to misdirect the cops, the caper is done with a very similar van to the one in which Joe Rolfe does his regular route right next door to the bank to a florist store so they time it so that as the florist van is there, their van's there as well. And so the cops go chasing the florist van. Joe Rolfe's got a little bit of a history with the cops because of uh, juvenile indiscretion. And so he's their main suspect. And while the real bad guys get away, he's being interrogated by the police. Now, this movie is quite unforgiving of the Kansas City Police Force in some ways because it's pretty obvious, even though it's done off-screen, that the cops have beaten up Joe and tried to get him to say what that he was a part of the crime and, and what he did as a part of the crime and who the other people in it were, all of that usual stuff the cops, for reasons unknown to any of us, want to know. But Joe doesn't give in. He, of course, he's got the virtue of not knowing, but he doesn't give in to the interrogations the cops do. And uh, he's known to be a war hero as well. Uh, I think it was the Battle of Saipan or one of those. He uh, he got himself a, a bronze star or something like that in there. A lot of the heroes of 1950s crime dramas like this were war heroes in various ways. It was a kind of a shorthand that the movies used to say that the hero is a tough guy. He was a war hero. He had some military training. He knew how to throw and take a punch. It was all kind of part of it as well because there were millions of American men who had that kind of training and who had that experience. So it also helped the audience identify with the guy. And John Payne is pretty good in this one. He did a couple of other films, including um, Hell's Island with Phil Carlson. Uh, unfortunately, in the early 1960s, he had a, a very severe car accident, which kind of put his career off to one side. He went on to do character parts after that, but he took a long time to recover from the car accident. And uh, for that reason, he didn't 
have the same career arc as some of the other people who came from the same kind of background as him. But the movie is in beautiful black and white, of course, because all good film noirs, with a number of exceptions, are in black and white. If you want to know one of the exceptions, it will be Leave It to Heaven with Gene Tierney and Cornell Wilde, which is in eye-popping technicolour. But to get back to this movie, Joe is released when the cops find the other delivery van, which is hidden in a truck. And he then decides that he's got to kind of not be under the shadow of the possibility that he was a part of the crime gang. And so he decides to track them down and find out what's happening. He's staked by a friend of his who he rescued during World War II, who runs a bar. He gives him a bit of a grub stake. And he follows the trail of clues down to Tijuana in pursuit of the one person he knows is a part of the gang. And that is um, Jack Elam's character, Pete Harris. He knows that Pete is a gambler. And so when he gets down to Tijuana, he has a local guide take him around the gambling establishments until he makes contact with Jack Elam's character. Now, Jack Elam is really good in this film, too. There are so many of the movies he did, Westerns in particular, that he did as an older actor, that didn't really give him a chance to shine as an actor, but he's a good character actor in this. Um, he is kind of weak but tough, uh, a gambler. He, he's basically a waste of oxygen. But Jack Elian puts this across really well. I mean, the, the, what, this movie is full of fantastic close-ups. And one of the things that Phil Carlson did, because the budget wasn't enormous on the film, even though it was shot on location in a couple of places, including Catalina, um, is he is very interested in the faces of the people and in the way that faces give away thoughts and action and potential action about to happen. And Carlson uses this very well, and he has his actors do that. He, he has them think what the character is supposed to be thinking and have that kind of portrayed in the face. And Jack Elliam does this really well. He's got that kind of you know, rough mug with the um, pop-eyed look, and that kind of works really well in this case. He's very sweaty character because, of course, they're heading down into the tropics at this stage. And Joe has an encounter with the Jackie Liam character and finds out by frisking him, basically, that he's supposed to head down to a little resort town in Mexico further down the coast in order for the payoff to occur because the money hasn't been split up at the time of the robbery. Um, the men were each given a playing card ripped in half and have to go down to this particular town in order to grab the money. And that isn't all of it. There is an elaborate twist to that part as well on why an ex-cop organises a, a great big robbery of $1.2 million, which is a lot of money in those days. It's a lot of money now, but it's an even bigger amount of money, of course, in 1952. So Joe follows the crims down there. Uh, Jackie Lamb's character, unfortunately, has an unfortunate demise at the hand of the local police and pretends to be the character uh, played by Jack Elam, whose name is Pete Harris, of course. I should remember that. It's a generic kind of name. So Joe goes down pretending to be Pete Harris, and on the way down he meets an attractive woman played by Colleen Gray, her name's Helen Foster, who turns out to be the son of Tim Foster, the retired cop who lives down there. 
And Colleen Gray is really good in this one as well. She plays uh, somebody who's um, studying for the bar, so she's an intelligent and educated woman on the right side of the law. And uh, she wasn't given a lot of opportunity as an actor, particularly in Hollywood. There were so many people, you know, so many attractive women floating around Hollywood that people with some talent, and she does have talent as an actor, uh, like Colleen Gray, really didn't get the opportunities that they um, required to take their careers forward. Of course, this being in the 1950s as well, birth control was a lot more difficult, so the careers of a lot of uh, up-and-coming female actors in Hollywood at the time were kind of punctuated with childbirth, and that, of course, um, has an effect on, on the way the body shape and all those kinds of things, and so it's a non-trivial problem for women in pre-1960 cinema to control their own fertility in the way that women now take for granted. But to end that digression and to get back to the movie, Colleen Gray is very good in the film. Uh, But as, of course, the plot line unfolds, Foster knows right away that um, Joe isn't Pete Harris. But his daughter's taken a shine to this guy, and so he's got to play it cool. None of them know that he's the mastermind of the criminal gang because they all wore masks, even when they were, whenever they were with each other. And so, the identity of everybody is hidden in the film. And apart from um, Joe, you have the two characters: Tony, played by Lee Van Cleef and Boyd, played by Neville Brand, who are down there as well, and who want their share of the money, and may be very willing to betray any of their co-conspirators should the opportunity arise. None of them have a particularly advanced moral compass. And then, of course, you've got the actors playing them. You've got Lee Van Cleef, who was brilliant in another movie uh, three years later called The Big Combo, where he played uh, Fante, one of the two criminal henchmen, of Richard Conti's character in that film, uh, the other one being Mingo, played by Earl Holyman, and they were portrayed in that movie as a gay couple, which is really kind of an interesting choice there. Uh, Evil gay people were, of course, uh, a way of demonising gay people, I suppose, and just kind of shorthand for these are sick bastards. But um, Lee Van Cleef in this one is really good as well. And again, the close-ups work because of the character actors' faces. Those faces really kind of work for it. And then you've got Neville Brand, which some people were told was the fourth most decorated soldier in World War II, the American soldier, but it wasn't correct. He did um, get a Silver Star for Gallantry in combat and a Purple Heart, the Good Conduct Medal, the American American Defence Service ribbon, the European-African Middle East Theatre ribbon and three battle stars, one overseas service bar, one service stripe and the Combat Infantryman's badge. So he did his part during World War II. But he definitely had a face that was uh, for playing in the heavy and not a not a really gifted actor particularly but he was good in a certain limited range of roles and he made a living of course doing that uh, up until his death in 1992 of emphysema of course a lot of people died of emphysema of that vintage mostly because they were smokers the climax of the film uh it takes place on a dock and on a boat and it's kind of the a generic shootout in a lot of ways though there is some back and forth between the characters and the redemption of one of the villains which is um kind of useful 
in the context of the movie, but it's uh, it's one of those movies that's a little bit weird and a little bit kind of front-heavy in some ways because the crime and the setup for the crime and the bits right up until um, John Payne's character travels to Mexico are really, really good. And then after that, they they get a little generic and then they pick up a little bit, but the climax isn't as good as the front end. I'll be honest with you about that. But nonetheless, it's a good, solid film noir and... I think that it's a movie that taught Phil Carlson that lesson, that the climax has to be at least as good as the front end in order to make the movie a satisfying experience. And uh, I think he definitely learnt that as the Phoenix City story uh, showed a few years later. But the movie has a lot of virtues as well. Of course, it's got the actors, and the actors are all, all great in it. It's got the tension that's ramped up by Carlson in the direction of the film. It's got a toughness, and uh, John Payne's character takes a lot of punches in this movie and gets knocked out at least twice, which in the real world, of course, means that he'd probably be suffering for for at least 6 to 12 months and have long-term effects of it. But again, that's a shorthand from getting from one scene to another in this kind of movie, is to have the protagonist knocked out and then something else happens. It's... uh, it could be seen as lazy writing in some ways, but it is a, a kind of quick transition sort of thing. And this movie is one of those ones too. It's it's one of those film noirs, and there are film noirs that are set in upper class circumstances. But overwhelmingly, film noir tends to be about working class guys. And you can't get more working class than a guy that delivers flowers for a florist store. Uh, and that's who we have in this film as well. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why the smaller studios were the best at film noir in some ways. Uh, Warner Brothers and uh, Columbia and all of those kind of just slightly second-rate studios were good at this sort of stuff. Warner Brothers was always the working man's studio, for instance. And then as the studio system started to crumble in the early 1950s and they started shedding staff, the... Independence came in. Ida Lupino's company did some great film noir. The company that uh, this movie was made by made this one great film noir. And none of them, of course, knew particularly that it was called film noir. It was only late 1940s that the French uh, invented the term, and it wasn't until the 1960s that America took notice of it and started looking at the back catalogues. Uh, the studios, at least in America, took a look at their back catalogues and st- suddenly realised that, yeah, we've got some stuff here that's really kind of cool and uh, we've got some uh, movies of virtue. We should re-release them on television and get a few um, rental bucks out of them as well. And then people like Scorsese and all of those 1960s Wunderkind film school, people like Scorsese and um, Coppola and all of those kind of guys... Uh, started seeing the virtues in these films, and, and probably have because they saw them first run in cinemas. There are a lot of films that influenced Scorsese, as I mentioned in the last podcast, that he saw as a kid in, in cinemas. And then, of course, the French got involved as well with the Cahiers de Cinema guys in the 1950s who, after the war, suddenly had this back catalogue of available American films and started seeing these crazily good uh, crime films and they kind of put them all together into the genre we now know as film noir. And, of course, film noir is a genre that still exists. There are the neo-noir movies that come out every few years that people go, oh, yeah, this one harks back to those old films. 
But there's also the, the smaller films like this one, Kansas City Confidential, and Murder by Contract I mentioned in the last podcast, which people are rediscovering now. And they were only ever B pictures. They had a brief time in the cinema as a second feature, and then they were shown on TV as part of a package that was sold to TV networks. But they're a thing of beauty. They tell us uh, in a way that big budget studio pictures never did what people were actually thinking and feeling at the time, the working class people and not just the kind of rich and beautiful people that you'd see in the A pictures of the studios. You actually kind of got a little bit of an insight into the kind of fears and worries of working class Americans at the time. And that's another one of the virtues of film noir is the fact that it does show you the underbelly. It doesn't show you the glossy outer coat of the, of America as it perceived itself, but it shows you the underbelly. It shows you the dark corners. It shows you the underprivileged corners. It shows you the place where people are lost and never really find themselves. And that's what makes it much more interesting than the A pictures in a lot of ways. That kind of glimpse at reality, even through the artifice of an of a motion picture. And a lot of the best film noirs uh, do have a lot of location shooting, particularly the lower budget ones where they'd use urban landscapes because they couldn't really afford studios for some shots. So they'd go out and guerrilla film them on the streets of a city. And I like that stuff. That's... Um, documentary in a lot of ways because you are seeing the city as it was at a particular time. Movies like Panic in the Streets show us what New Orleans looked like at the time, for instance. Um, it's, it's really interesting stuff and from an historical viewpoint and increasingly as I get more and more into old movies, I, I like the historical detail around what's being said and what's actually happening in the movies that are really cool. You know, what did drive-through burger joints look like at the time? What were people doing in their cars? How did the car dashboards look? How did people dress? The style of the clothes, the style of the hats, the the way the houses looked and the furnishings in the houses. All of that kind of stuff I find endlessly interesting. And movies like this give me a, um, a little bit of a, an extra glimpse into that kind of stuff. That mid-20th century look is really, really cool, even though, of course... I couldn't do without my internet and my flat screen TV. I still find it um, an interesting visual um, kind of landscape against which the action of the films take place. So I'm going to take a break now, and when I get back, we're going from the fears of the early 1950s to a much bigger studio picture, The Satan Bug, starring George Maharis and Richard Basehart and Anne Francis. And I'll take a look at the fears of the 1960s. I'm George Maharis, and this is the Satan Bug. It's kept in there, beyond those doors, but you can't get in. It's top secret. The Satan bug is kept under the tightest security system ever devised. That door operates on a time lock. Open it one second before you should, and a thousand volts of electricity will greet you. Try to get over these electrified fences, and trained killer dogs will go after you. Try to get through that front gate. You can't, unless your life's history is on file in that guardhouse. Yes, the Satan bug is top secret. It's no secret, however, that I think the Satan Bug is one of the most suspenseful and exciting pictures I've ever seen. But don't take my word for it. 
you see it. The Cold War was really, really good to action films. Uh, it was a tremendous background for them. The threat of nuclear annihilation at the start of the Cold War was one thing. The threat of biological warfare kind of increased and enhanced that. And this movie is very much about that threat of biological warfare. It, it takes place at a secret site in the uh, Western American desert where a bunch of vials of bacteriological weapons are stolen by unknown parties. Five of the vials are a very virulent version of botulism, which uh, doesn't act like botulism really does in this uh, movie scenario. Basically, uh, smash the vial and everybody within a certain radius dies within a few minutes. That's what you need to know from the MacGuffin there. And the last vial, the one with the red top in the beaker, is what's called the Satan bug, which is a self-replicating virus which, um, will, if released, has the potential to destroy all life on the Earth, which is probably why it's called the Satan bug. The plot of the film is basically the attempt to get back all of the viri and all of the bugs and you know, save the world, essentially. That, that's, it's a pretty simple plot line, in essence. There are some elaborations and there are some kind of people who aren't who they appear to be and all that kind of stuff. But that's the, the main gist of it. Uh, one of the people brought on board to help with the investigation is the George Maharas character, who's a kind of retired intelligence officer whose name is, he said scrolling down, Lee Barrett. He's brought on board uh, out of retirement to kind of you know, track down the bug, find out how it got out, find out whether the locked safe in the compound may have some of the live virus in it and his job basically is to track everything down save the day rescue the world and which isn't a particularly bad job to have i suppose if you've got to have these sort of things along for the um ride are Anne francis playing Anne williams who's the next flame of his who's part of the intelligence community and the daughter of general williams played by dana andrews who's in charge of the investigation we have um, a bunch of really interesting character actors playing various agents and various villains in the movie you've got uh, john anderson a guy who's got a very familiar face playing one of the agents investigating things You've got Henry Beckman, another jobbing actor for a very long time, who wrote a book on how to be a character actor in, in the past. You've even got, uh, in a non-speaking role, but very obvious who he is, James Doohan playing one of the investigators who ultimately gets killed by the virus. Uh, and you've got the villains who are played, and it's not too big a secret to say that they're played by Richard Basehart is one of them, Ed Asner who's still alive and kicking and uh, doing okay, playing Veretti, one of the other ones. Frank Sutton, who people remember played the sergeant in Goma Pyle with Jim Neighbours back in the day, but it was still a very good character actor who unfortunately got typecast by that role. Simon Oakland's in it. Harry Rhodes is in it. James Hong turns up in one scene as one of the scientists as well. James Hong, you see in any number of quite a big um, budget a pictures of the 1960s as well uh, before we know him from his um, more char- more interesting character roles he did since Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, the movie is uh, very much an A picture directed by John Sturgis 
who had just come off an incredibly good run as a director over the previous 10 years. He started out in 1955 with Bad Day at Blackrock, The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. He was the master of the widescreen, the panoramic vistas of of widescreen filming were really the, the John Sturgis at his best and also he did um, Gunfight at the OK Corral with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster so he definitely knew his stuff and I think uh, if this movie has any kind of failings it is in the script rather than in the direction because Sturgis's direction is really great there's a nice title sequence in this film as well Jerry Goldsmith did this um, compose the soundtrack for this one, and it's a kind of minimalist and very kind of computery Jerry Goldsmith soundtrack. But uh, the title sequence was done by to Patty Freelang, and it's kind of a visual representation of a virus attacking um, cells and then a human body. It's very abstracted and very cool and then it fades out into a shot of a highway in the desert which is done really really nicely it shows that there's a lot of style and art in this now i'm going to talk about george maharas for a little bit because i find his career and his life interesting for uh for some kind of mixed reasons in a lot of ways he started, became famous doing the television series route 66 with martin milner in the early 1960s which was an incredibly kind of popular show but it was also an incredibly timely show in this is a story of two guys in a motor car in a sports car driving about around america taking on jobs just seeing their country and um enjoying themselves getting into adventures falling in love falling out of love just basically living the the story of america in the 1960s and they filmed so much of it on various locations it was a very very hard job for the actors and for the production team to run around for nine months of the year filming this tv series uh in very widely ranging locations uh there's a lot of stunt work a lot of stunt work involved in the actors concern and maharas um there's two stories on why he left the tv series a season or two before it closed they replaced him later on with an actor called glenn corbett but there are two conflicting stories on why he left the first one which is based on fact, is that he got contagious meningitis, uh, contagious hepatitis, sorry, and was quite ill for a while. And he went back for the next season of the show on the condition that they were going to ease up on him as far as the, um, the breakneck pace of filming and, and the kind of stunts he had to do because he wasn't particularly well. And they just put him back into the centre of it again and he became ill again because of the um, stress of doing various difficult bits of work to make Route 66. The other story, which is mixed in with this as well, is that um, the production company and the studio were concerned because George Maharas is gay and he wasn't particularly hiding it at the time, even though he's, he's never publicly come out. He was living his life in, in, the, in his own terms, which is all, you know, why the hell shouldn't he? But at the time they were, when uh, he was caught in a compromising position in a men's room in a restaurant, uh, the, he was arrested for that. And then the production crew and the, and the company and the studio found out about it. They kind of hushed it all up, of course, the way they did at the time. But they were... Um, they said they felt betrayed by the fact that he hadn't told them he was gay and he um, 
was on the outer for that. Now, again, his career, he went on to do some movies and some pretty good movies as well. But again, his career took another knock in 1967 when the same thing happened um, in another location, I think somewhere down towards San Diego, where he's arrested in a men's room with another guy. Uh, this one got a lot more publicity because he didn't have the studio backing him up to quite the same extent. And George Maharis's career as a Hollywood leading actor died for that reason. Now, he did a number of good films. He did this one, which is cool. cool. Um, he did a movie called Sylvia with Carol Baker, which I have a great fondness for. And he, he did a number of other kind of smaller films, but his career was very much curtailed by the two arrests that he had and what that did to his image as a romantic leading man in cinema because 20th century homophobia being what it is, particularly in an industry town like Hollywood. But Maharis is good in this one. Uh, he's working with Anne Francis as well. Uh, Anne Francis is pretty much the only woman in this film, which is the second time Anne Francis has been the only woman in a John Sturgis movie. As Paul Scraber pointed out to me when I said that I watched this film, uh, he Anne Francis was the only female character in Bad Day of Black Rock as well. And then 10 years later, she's suddenly the only woman in, well, the only woman who has a speaking part in any kind of significance in the film. There is one other woman of note in the film, and I'll talk about her in a moment, uh, in The Satan Bug. So Anne Francis is kind of very much the only um, woman in, in the Sausage Fest movie of John Sturgis's for the second time. But uh, the movie does kind of have a, a good line of Cold War paranoia about it. There are lots of guys in suits walking around there, uh, there's that kind of 1960s scientific set design, which I kind of like, that um, atom punk look with lots of gauges and dials and great big vaults and um, sliding glass doors and all those kind of little bits of business that kind of scream out 1960s lab. All the kind of beakers and bubbling fluids, the various colours on the lab benches, the little anonymous oscilloscope boxes, all that kind of stuff. I like that kind of iconography there. But for the most part, the movie takes place out in the desert and uh, it was filmed outside Palm Springs with lots of nice mountains in the background out there in the high desert of Southern California. And it was a landscape that Sturgis knew well from uh, Bad Day of Black Rock. And it also kind of... It's interesting having that kind of contrast between the high-tech scientific world of this kind of germ warfare lab and the kind of sparse and, and arid plains of the desert and the hills in the background, which there's a nice contradiction and a nice tension between those two locations, even though they're close by each other. And, uh, of course, you've got those great big American Ford motor cars of the time, which were held to corner by the look of them anytime you see one of them going around a corner fast you think the bloody thing's going to roll because of the size and the shape of it but uh the, the movie does uh, have some pacing problems in in various bits there are some bits that run a little slower than they should and uh, there are little bits that are dialogue intensive there particularly when they're um investigating the uh disappearance and and trying to get a, a tab on these people who are running away, a threat is made to release the virus in Los Angeles and to prove that they were serious about the threat uh, one of the vials of botulism is released in Florida and there's some 
black and white shots of um, kind of high flying you know, helicopter shots of the devastation, the human devastation that's caused by this virus. There are lots of people in lots of crashed cars lying around a highway and things like that. So they do kind of cover the existential threat that is germ warfare in a very interesting and slightly oblique way. There's a great scene where a couple of um, intelligence agents and Lee Barrett, played by George Maharis, are captured by the bad guys and locked in a deserted uh, petrol station out in the desert there, kind of adobe and brick building. And um, one of the vials of botulism is thrown through the window of this building and into the building so that uh, everybody inside will be killed. And there's a nice tense bit involving that and how that's dealt with in quite creative ways and uh, showing the speed at which this kind of bug kills people in a, in a very evocative way, killing James Dewan as one of the people who gets killed in it. I think there's a little bit of a, a, a dodgy bit special effect of the vial being thrown into the building as well, where it seems to be on a string because they maybe couldn't get the arc of the vial exactly the way they wanted to. But, you know, 1960s cinema, you kind of got to allow them that little bit of... Um, problematic stuff they didn't have the ability to do things by cg that we have now and nonetheless the actors put across the tension and the um the threat of the thing quite interestingly and being the resource for character he is lee barrett finds a way to destroy the virus before it has too much of an effect on uh the area the movie was based on an Alistair MacLean novel. He wrote it under a pseudonym of Ian Stewart, but it's definitely Alistair MacLean. It's one of his early novels. The, the novel took place in England and involves a married couple instead of an estranged couple, and but it still has a lot of the same kind of uh, plot points as this film do, as the film does. But nonetheless, I may have to track down a copy of the book of the Satan Bug and just read through it to see uh, the differences there. There's a lot of helicopters and chases and roadblocks and all those sorts of things that you need in this sort of movie, and there's some quite interesting detective work in it. Uh, the climax, which takes place in a helicopter above Los Angeles, suffers from the fact that there's a lot of rear projection work in the helicopter fight, and that kind of takes away the verisimilitude a little bit for a 21st century audience. But again, it's an, a movie that's designed as an entertainment and possibly even as a cautionary tale against germ warfare in some ways. But uh, it rolls along at a reasonable pace for most of it once you get past that the talk fest that you need to set up the um, what's happening and how things have happened and how um, people got into... Uh, do what they needed to do to get this bug and that kind of thing. So there's some kind of creative stuff in there as well, which uh, seems to play uh, a little bit like a 1960s-slash-1970s TV episode about the similar kind of break-in. That's one of the problems with these movies. A lot of the sets get reused for TV series, so when you watch the movie itself you go okay well that looks a lot like that tv series i saw that did this but it's all it is is really reusing some of the actors and some of the same sets for a different purpose um yeah that's kind of a a limitation of of these kind of movies and and the limitation of having those studio product films is that they did reuse things which is kind of okay um 
movie making is a kind of continuum. Things are a lot more sophisticated than they used to be, and the ability to create things that aren't really there has changed the way film over the last, say, we'll say 20 odd years since something like Jurassic Park, when we could suddenly create dinosaurs that look like dinosaurs. That change has meant that all of these older films where you had the back projection on the helicopter fight and you have those kind of slightly ropey special effects of the beaker arcing through a hole in the wall and smashing on the ground. Those things are something that these days are a trivial problem and at the time were very much a non-trivial problem. You had to get the light in the camera showing the right things to make a special effect work in those days. You didn't have too many opportunities to fix it in post-production with trickery. I mean, there, is, there are a couple of fast cuts to cover a couple of those loopholes in the film. But in general, it was very much a different technology. And one of the interesting things is kind of considering for a moment that arc that goes all the way back to George Melies on showing things that aren't real. And we... Did progress. I mean, as a society, because these entertainment industries generated such enormous amounts of money and, and gave enormous amounts of pleasure to people, there was always this technological push to make things more and more realistic as time went on. And they did try to make it real, realistic in a lot of ways. The um, shots of the people in Florida devastated by the bug are uh, a part of it. The way the lab is set up is another part of it. The um, scientific methodologies used and the investigations and all of those kind of weird and wonderful 1960s tropes, the limitations as well the fact that getting to a phone was important rather than just pulling one out of your pocket all of those things we now take for granted which probably make these kind of espionage films both easier and more difficult to do in some ways uh, make this movie very much a uh, kind of artifact of 50 years in the past but nonetheless it's um it's got a couple of actors i like in it i do like george maharas as an actor i've seen him in some episodes of rude 66 where he was acting his heart out i mean i'm not sure he's the most brilliant actor in the world but he was somebody who really tried hard at his craft and that um i like a lot uh he and also possibly because of his sexuality i don't know i've seen some episodes of rude 66 where he showed a sensitivity and a vulnerability that you didn't really often see in protagonists in episodic television in the 1960s. And all credit to him for that, he kind of did bear his emotions a lot more in a lot of his films and a lot of his TV work than a lot of other actors were willing to do. Nobody wanted to be seen as soft and sensitive, but George Maharas, even though he had the looks of a a heterosexual hero in some ways in cinema was willing to um, do it, the emotional stuff and in the movie Sylvia particularly if you get a chance to see that one he does show um, sensitivity and maybe he, even though he had looks maybe he wasn't suited for that kind of role maybe he's suited for a different kind of role than the ones he was given the opportunity to do in his career. But I liked him a lot as an actor. I saw him in Route 66 when I was a kid and, and in some other movies and other things as well. But um, I think he got a, a bad break in being an actor 
who was discriminated against because of his sexuality at the time. But I liked him as an actor, and um, all strength him. He's, he's 87 years old now, and he's still kicking. So he's had a, a pretty good innings there. But uh, And I, I like Anne Francis as well. I, I've been in love with Anne Francis ever since I first saw Forbidden Planet, of course. Um, I like her. And I like Richard Basehart too, who was an actor who really ended up doing episodic television like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, but had the chops of a character actor right from the start. He did any number of good films. If you look back over Richard Basehart's career, his, his acting was superb in a number of occasions. And then you've got character actors that we like, like Ed Asner in there and James Doohan's in there and John Anderson and all these other people who's... And Simon Oakland, who um, ended up being the boss of Carl Kolchak in The Night Stalker. All these people that um, I, I like as actors, I, I think that they were good, honest tradesmen at what they did. And having them in uh, a John Sturgis film is kind of interesting. And seeing, you know, like Scotty wearing a 1960s American suit, for instance, is slightly unusual for Star Trek fans. But uh, The Satan Bug, I'm glad it got re-released on Blu-ray. I think that a lot of these films, even if they're not the best of the best of their sort, are still worth people evaluating and maybe cherishing as well. They're, they're historical films now, but they were um, good, honest actioners. They, I mean, this one in particular did send that message that biological warfare was a real and present threat and to i suppose to a certain extent it still is in a lot of ways there's a lot of chemical warfare going on in places like syria at the moment that doesn't get as much um media oxygen as it needs to get but um yeah i like it and i like john sturgis's approach to the way he films landscapes is magnificent i don't think john sturgis would be capable of filming a bad scene John Sturgis and Desert Landscapes are just such a natural match that uh, even watching this film with the sound off, it's pretty impressive. But uh, that's about it for The Satan Bug. I recommend that you see it. I recommend that you know, if you want to buy the Blu-ray, it's it's quite cheap. The Kino Lorber um, re-releases of a lot of these films are very cheap, even with the exchange rates that are out there for... Um, Australians to buy these things but if you're an American and most of you people listening are definitely look into those Kino Lorber Blu-rays because a lot of them will show you movies that you might not have been aware of and uh, are definitely worth your time but anyway I'm going to round it all up there and finish it all up there Ah, thank you to all the Patreon subscribers of course the people who support the podcast and enable me to buy blu-rays to talk about on the podcast um thank you to the listeners as well everybody who listens wonderful i appreciate that and thank you to uh other podcast cronies like big william the samurai and morris and the brin and even people who don't do movie podcasts like Alyssa, alex and tansy and um mondy and kirsten and all those other people who I know do good, solid podcasts. In fact, um, Alyssa, Alex and Tansy won a Hugo Award for Galactic Suburbia this year, which is great. And uh, their Hugo Award rocket ships have arrived and have been delivered now. So all credit to them. So I'm going to leave you, of course, as usual, with the credits done in the style of movie credits. But before I do that, I'm going to leave you with a track of George Mahara singing, because I, he didn't have a bad voice. I saw him in an episode of the Judy Garland Show, which is currently showing on Australian cable. And, you know, he had a, a good 
interesting tenor voice and um, a nice little bit of a crooner there. And so I thought I'd leave you with a, uh, a, a little tribute to George Maharas and the bum rap that he got during his career as an actor. And saying bum rap is not a joke on the man's sexuality either, by the way. Oh, that's the other thing I meant to tell you. The other woman in the movie. The other woman in the movie is the cocktail waitress who, when Lee is sitting in a jazz club near the start of the movie, tells him he's got a phone call. And you, she's kind of in half profile, and you can't see her very clearly because of the lighting. But what it is is actually a, a little cameo by Lee Remick, who decided to just do the role as a favour to her friends, and uh, turns up in this movie just as an extra, in a sense. Even though Lee Remick, of course, great actress, um, interesting person, just did this little bit of a role as a, as a little kind of a joke. But anyway, here's George Maharas. Now look at that fire over there. Isn't it sweet? What are you hiding for? Ah, oh, come on. Ooh, make yourself comfortable. Yeah. Ooh, make yourself comfortable. Ah, come on, make yourself comfortable. Baby. That's it. Get in the mood. Yeah, 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 yeah. Make yourself comfortable. Oh well, can't you try? Make yourself comfortable, baby. Sweetheart, we. Through the dance We left Before that picture show was through Tell me Why did we uh, hurry through the dinner Hurry, hurry through the dance To leave some time for this To hug, hug Kiss and kiss now mm, Yeah, yeah Take off your shoesies Ah, ooh, yeah, baby, come over here. Ooh, that's it. Make yourself comfortable, baby. Yeah. Oh, baby. And here are the credits for the Patreon subscribers to the podcast in the style of movie credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Armin the Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, the New York unit director, 
and Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. We also have Paul, who does the special makeup effects, and Kathleen, who has yet to have a job in the credits. And Eric, of course, is the set security lead. So thank you to everybody who supports the podcast and to the people who listen to it. If you want to support the podcast with some micropayments, please go to patreon.com slash paleocinema. And I'll catch all of you next time.